first book, which is, isn't a novel, um, is a critical work for um, Oxford University Press about Samuel Richardson. I feel slightly Dickensian actually saying we've left you. We left you some time ago, um, <laughs> just having uh, no in the city. Um, how did you get from the city to to working on the other side and then to mm. back, back to academia? You, you, you yes. made the decision. Um, yes, that was another another interesting sort of. What's that line in that pop song? Turn a different corner, and we never would have met. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I suppose it was a bit of a case of just showing you you can't over control your life, or perhaps it's wise not to, and to be open to um, sudden, sudden, you know, di- different things turning up that you weren't expecting. Um, I, I was working for Guinness um, in the Treasury Department. You know, that I said earlier, I was working finance, and it just so happened, complete, complete luck. Um, that the the department I worked in was on the same floor um, as the PR department. So I got to know the people working there, you know, getting back to coffee machines, (laughs) got to know the people working in the PR department. And then one day um, on the staff sort of vacancies board, they were advertising for a sponsorship manager for the corporate sponsorship, not the brand-related stuff, the corporate stuff. And I looked at it and I thought, that's my dream job. <laughs> oh my God, I wonder if I could actually actually get that job. So um, I went and spoke to the people who were you know, recruiting and uh, I was, just to cut a long story short, I was incredibly lucky they, they gave it to me. Because uh, I didn't have any of the experience um, that they, they were really looking for. But, you know, it was an internal move, so they were quite supportive and an idea of having a, you know, developing my career and all that so they said okay well we'll 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 let you have a go and I think that that actually did turn out to be the best job I ever had it really was fantastic I did two particular um, projects which were both of which were my own idea in in that time one was a pub theatre sponsorship which for Guinness was absolutely lovely you can imagine um, we were sponsoring places, you know, these little pubs in London who were, who were you know, carved out a theatre in the back room. And, it, and the great thing about pub theatre was it was very valuable because it was where a lot of people started their careers. And, you know, places like the Lyric, uh, not the Lyric, the Gate, the Gate in Hammersmith started oh, yeah. out as a pub. So, and it became a proper theatre and everything else, but it started out as a pub. So that was a lovely thing to, to be involved in, you know, sponsoring the arts. And the other one, which is, it has had more longevity, uh, was the Water of Life uh, programme, which was a water-related humanitarian and environmental projects that we were funding all around the world. Um, and that's actually still going. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I came up with the idea in '96, and I left the company in 2000, and it is still going. And the last five years, five million people in Africa have got clean water through wow. that project. And I just am overwhelmed by that. Um, and, you know, it just shows you you can come up with an idea that can change the world just one person so uh, I think of, of, of if I ever get to the pearly gates <laughs> that'll be the reason they let me in <laughs> but yeah that was a fantastic period in my life I was doing some really good things and you know and being very creative you know I was going to say linking creativity yeah coming up with ideas and, and then you know linking it all together and linking it back to the company because the phrase water of life is actually where the word whiskey comes from. Right. Yeah, in Gaelic, it's uskabar turns into water, water of life turns into whiskey as a, you know as a corruption of the word. And um, Guinness was and um, Diageo now is the biggest producer of Scotch in the world. So it was just a lovely little link back to 
um, the nature of the company and the fact that it relies on clean water itself in order to be able to, to produce the, the products that this makes. So yeah, that was fantastic. Um, and then I did a couple more different jobs in PR. I ended up being the director of the, of the PR department after the merger. And um, then I decided to go and work for Yahoo for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> That was in the middle of the dot-com boom, and it seemed like a great idea at the time. <laughs> dot-com boom didn't last much longer right. after that. Um, but then uh, then I, I thought, okay, well, rather than take another big PR job, um, why not try going out on my own? Why not go freelance for a bit? Um, so that's when I did that. Um, I, went out, I went freelance at that point. Was that a similar restlessness that you had? After university, having studied words, you want mm. to do numbers. Do, was there a point? Where, is there always a point you get to where you want to do something? It's an interesting point. No one's ever expressed it like that before. But I think you might be right. Yes, you sort of get to an end of a of a of a phase, and even if you don't quite term it that way in your own mind, that's actually what's going on. And uh, and I had actually, while I was in the city, um, towards the end, I'd actually done an MA with the Open University because I was starting to miss the words. So uh, I actually did an MA um, while I was still working. What was uh, was that a literary MA? Yes, it was on. In fact, it was on the eighteenth-century novel. Okay. Um, and then I started the job where I was doing the sponsorship. Um, so you know that that sort of fulfilled the creativity and the words uh, longing for a while. And then when I went freelance, as, as I said right right at the beginning when we first started talking, I suddenly had a lot more time on my hands uh, for the first time ever since I'd left university. Um, and while I was building up my, my copywriting um, business. So that was the chance um, to, to actually start um, writing for myself. It was very funny, just before I, I left Diageo, before I went into Yahoo, which didn't last very long, but um, I actually had a conversation with my mentor, because you, you know you have mentors. <laughs> if you're in big companies, you have mentors, so I had one. Um, and uh, he said to me, uh, we went out for lunch, and he said... Um, so what are your ambitions? And I started to answer the question in terms of the job I was then doing. And he stopped me straight away and said, no, that's not what I mean at all. What are your ambitions? Right. And before I even knew what I was going to say, one of those moments where your brain is, is, a, you know, is ahead of you, um, I said, I want to publish a novel and do a doctorate. And then it was out there, and then it was real. <laughs> really? So once yeah. you'd said it... Once I'd said it, suddenly it all crystallised. I thought, actually, that is what I wanted to do. Um, so once I went um, freelance, both of those things suddenly became possible because I, I uh, applied to come back to Oxford to do the doctorate, which I hadn't done all those years before. Um, and I'm so glad I did it then, um, not earlier, because yeah. it was an utter pleasure to do it later because uh, I understood... The privilege that it entailed you know the absolute joy of of working and researching and reading um, and I, I absolutely loved it um, for the, the three years that I, I did that but it also opened up time to start the creative writing as I said earlier I suddenly had some time where I could start thinking about what <coughs> I might want to do in terms of a novel and I played around with a few things and then there was that momentous email when I came up with the title Murder at Mansfield Park and then off I went <laughs> Were there novels before? I'm always very curious about mm. the, 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 the unpublished novels, the novels mm. that are lurking still in the lur- death lurking's drawers. The word, okay. yes. <laughs> what, what sort of things were you trying be, before? And are there, are there un, 
unpublished but but finished that might come out um, and I don't think they ever come out um, the one that I finished first is it, it was actually I, I talked earlier about how I'd, I'd um, loved um, Joan Smith's novels yeah. her crime novels and um, she had this central character called Loretta Lawson who I always thought was fantastic and I think that very first book I tried to write was very much in the sort of that sort of um, you know, territory. It was a modern set book. Um, with it was a mystery story, but it was set in a um, contemporary uh, period. But the interesting thing about it was that um, the mystery element of it was the discovery of a long lost first draft. Of Mansfield Park, right? Uh, so it was buzzing around, which of course would have been exceptionally valuable, and blah blah blah. So that that was sort of the, the the sort of linchpin of the plot. Of that book was this long lost um, Mansfield Park, and what I actually did was write bits of it that were interleaved with the story. So I started to do some pastiche Jane okay. Austen. So by the time I had this murder at Mansfield Park moment um, on on email with my agent, I had already done a bit. So I knew I could actually probably bring off um, some Jane Austen. I, I didn't know whether I could bring a whole book off because I'd only done some little snippets. Um, but, you know, I wasn't completely, uh, sort of, as it were, sort of terrified by the prospect because I had, I had a run-up at it. <laughs> but you tried, and you tried to get those published? I tried to get that one published, and that nearly did, but didn't quite. So what kept you going? Was it just the sheer enjoyment of, of writing f- fiction? Or was it, did you have a sense even then that you wanted to be published and that maybe mm. you wanted a, a, a literary career as yes. well as, as yeah. your own. I mean, by then I, I really, you know, sort of had a sort of hunger for it and really wanted to do it. And we got close enough that, um, you know, it was, it was obviously possible. It wasn't beyond, you know, my wildest dreams. It was possible. I just had to write something better. And, you know, you're, you're a real, really serious and talented person if you get your first book published and people rave about it. So there aren't many people in that position. So I wasn't put off by the fact that the first one didn't quite work because I took the view that it was an apprenticeship as much as anything else. Um, it's a strange thing with novel writing, actually, that people somehow expect us to write something handed in and see the shops it. a week. Yeah, a yeah week absolutely. No, you have to learn your craft. It's like anything else. Um, and we talked earlier about how difficult dialogue is. You know, <laughs> yes. Dialogue's really hard, and I only learnt that by trying to write it. Mm. Um, and the other thing I always say is, you know, there's all these people who have started a book. Well, yeah, that's only half the story, because it's a completely different thing to end a book. As I said earlier, I'm really, I'm a real, you know, bet noir with my, with my, uh, my fascination and and uh, irritation with with um, with endings. Uh, so. You do have to learn how to finish a book. You know, it's a bit like flying a jumbo jet. You know, the skills you need to get it up are not the same <laughs> <laughs> as the skills you need to get it back down again. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, learning how to end them. Um, it, you, know, you, you do have to learn how to do that. It's not the same. You know, starting five novels and never finishing them isn't the same. If, you know, and it's obviously an alternate universe, but... If you hadn't got published, say, for, for Murder Mouse, how long do you think you would have kept going? Would, I mean, it, was publication the be-all and end-all, or would you, would you, do you feel a need to write, in any case, to express yourself mm. creatively? It's a bit of that. It's a bit of both. Uh, I do think it's wonderful to write. So um, people who you know, want to try their hand at writing, I think, always think they should. Uh, because I think it's it's a marvelous way of, uh, of you know just just developing your own talents, developing 
um, your your own, uh, you know, enriching your own life really to to write regardless of whether it gets published or not. Um, but yes, I suppose most people would like to see it published. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think that's a shared ambition by pretty much everybody who puts pen to paper, and we all have the dream of being the next. JK Rowling or whatever and that ain't going to happen but you know we still have the dream and there's nothing wrong with the dream because it happens every once in a million years you know, to one person. It still took her sort of three or four books before it really grew up. There are moments in both uh, Tom All Alone's and Atrocious Like is where your own voice um, breaks in he said reaching elegantly <laughs> to his um, stand. Um, I mean, also rather extraordinary, and there are moments where you hypothesise, say, about Shelley's mm. possible pathology, also about, mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. certain characters in Tom Alone's, mm-hmm. you said, trying not to give away um, what happens. Um, here we are on page 238. Um, As a more celebrated novelist than I once said, we can sometimes recognise the looks of a century ago in a modern face but never those for centuries to come. And this lad had Charles, but no, it's just the very model of a modern teenage geek. And it's got a really <laughs> extraordinary paragraph because it seems that Lynn Shepard herself is in there and is that John Fowles? yeah. How much of Lynn Shepard are in these novels? Mm. Is, is there a way that you're slightly hiding behind different sort of facades, not just your own sort of fictional voice, but there's kind of another layer between you? And I, mm. I'm not trying to sort of get you to, to, to reveal it. Enormous trees. But I suppose another way of asking this is a very long-winded question, um, how personal these novels are. Because mm. there are themes that are recurring, I think. There the... are. I mean, I, I, I don't consciously use my own experience very okay. much. Um, that authorial voice point that you make absolutely rightly um, is actually inspired by John Fowles, who you have okay. to beautifully chosen exactly the right quote. Um, because in The French Lieutenant's Woman, which is one of my favourite books, uh, that's exactly what he does. He approaches the 19th century from the perspective of the 20th, in his case, as he was writing in the 60s. And um, I've always loved that book, and I've always thought that was very clever. But it also, from the point of view of writing historical fiction, it's a marvellous way around the great challenge of <laughs> historical fiction, which we all face, which is how on earth do you give information to your reader without making it clunky or clumsy or cheesy? You know, those conversations where one person will turn to another and say, oh, did you know Napoleon has escaped from Elba? I mean, conversations that people just simply would never have had. Well, Dan in- Brown's uh, character who has just a... This- photocopy or photographic memory where he can reveal whole lectures which conveniently give you every detail exactly. about Dante that you've Abs- Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the perennial challenge of writing historical fiction. Um, and to, to do what I've done, you know, partly in, in echo and homage of, of Fowles, and indeed Dickens, because Dickens does this. Dickens intervenes. Well, obviously not with a historical perspective, but he intervenes. So it was actually a sort of double homage to, to, to Pete in Tom to decide that every now and again I'm actually going to talk about the 19th century with the benefit of hindsight. Um, the key point being, of course, that my, my readers have the same hindsight that I do, but my characters don't. Right. Um, so my readers and I know things that my characters don't know. The obvious, obvious one in, in, um, in both of these recent novels is, you know, old Maddox is ill, and no one in the 19th century knows 
what it is that he's suffering from. But we all do, because it's Alzheimer's, and we know exactly what Alzheimer's looks like, but they didn't. Uh, It wasn't diagnosed, I think, till 1920s, I think. Uh, And certainly, given that it's a disease of very old age, people didn't live that long. Course. So there wouldn't have been many examples of Alzheimer's in the 90s. Obviously, it must have existed because the disease hasn't suddenly sprung up out of nowhere, but there simply wouldn't have been many people who had it. And it, it must have been particularly terrifying for them because they had this idea, you're either mad or sane, or mad being their, <clears throat> you know, not vocabulary we use anymore, but that was the vocabulary that they used. But you couldn't be mad one minute and sane the next in the way mm. that to their eyes, someone with Alzheimer's might appear to be. So that's why I think it's particularly difficult for young Charles in dealing with that, is that he never knows when his uncle is going to be lucid or actually quite terrifyingly not lucid, abusive, violent, um, terrified. Um, So from that point of view, that, that perspective that I take in the authorial position in the book is actually very helpful. Um... It's particularly helpful, again, in the Shelley book, because the one thing I knew at the beginning writing that book was that very few of my readers were likely to know much detail <laughs> about the lives of these people. They would know some, and you know, some expert readers would know everything, yeah. but most people wouldn't probably know very much. So I had to find a way to talk to them about this um, in a way that I couldn't dramatise. I tried to dramatise as much as I could, because that's the best way to do it. But you can't dramatise everything, and you certainly can't dramatise, in the, in the, given the, the, the particular structure of the book that I have, I couldn't dramatise Shelley's childhood, for example, mm-hmm. because it's outside the scope of the time frame. But I needed to talk about that, because I needed people to know quite how strange he was, <laughs> uh, right from a very young age, and the sorts of things, you know, like the, the episode where he impaled another child's hand to a desk with a fork when he was at school. I mean, this is the sort of thing people need to know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't want someone to suddenly say, oh, Shelley, do you remember when you impaled... I mean, that just would have sounded absolutely appalling. Yeah. So, uh, from my point of view, that, that authorial voice where I, I uh, occasionally step back and I speculate or I talk to my reader, it could have been this, it could have been that, we don't know. Um, there was also an incident in which Shelley did this. You know, so you can, you can do it. I, I tried not to overdo it because it would have been easy to overdo it. Uh, but every now and again, there were key things that I absolutely desperately wanted my readers to know. And that was the best and most elegant and deficient way of doing it. How much license when you're doing research and then translating that research into fiction, how much license would you take? I mean, for example, in a previous conversation we've had, you, you mentioned this rather extraordinary story um, about Shelley, who may or may not have swapped children, um, or was rather, t- if I, um, if I, you know, do you tell that story? But how, how much prompting? Yes. How much? How much license would you take with your your research in terms of of the fiction? Um, That's a very uh, that particular example is very interesting because it, actually my husband went on a on a guided tour of Oxford and the and the tour guide actually came up with this story about Shelley completely unprompted about how one day apparently he was on the high street and he saw two babies um, in, in, in two separate presumably pram-like things or cradles or whatever uh, and he just swapped them over and walked on 
and never bothering to know or find out whether the mothers had actually noticed. You know, so the way that, the, that what this might tell you about Shelley. Now, I do I do report that in the novel, but I report it as being told by a city guide. So right, okay. I don't say that it's fact um, because I I don't know. If, I haven't come across that anywhere else. But presumably that city guide's got it from somewhere, and it's not something that you would make up. But I I don't I don't present that as factual. I present that as a story told about him. And actually, stories that are told about people are often very revealing mm. because they, they actually show you what people believe about, about those them, people yeah. and what they believe is possible about those people. And clearly they thought that it was possible that Shelley would have done such a thing. You know, it was consistent with what was known of his character. Mm. Um, to answer your sort of bigger and more important question, um, I've tried to stick to the facts wherever I know them. Right. Um, and I, re- I always use this analogy of the concrete posts in the ground. Uh, there are things that happened at certain times at which certain people were present, and I don't mess with that. I don't shunt events forward in time to make it easier for myself. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't completely change. Oh, I'll, I'll move that Geneva episode to Yorkshire because it's more. No, I, I don't do that. Um, what I do do, and I do allow myself to do, is between the concrete posts, particularly in the case of the Shelleys because of the strange nature of their lives. Between the concrete posts we know about, there are large tracks we don't know about, where we have hints about what might have happened, or we have different points of view, many times conflicting. And there I allow myself to speculate. And and what I'm trying to do is to find a story that actually can link up these concrete posts and find something that has some sort of coherence, explain some of these things, which otherwise are completely bizarre. Some of the events that happen, the, the, the shooting in Wales, where Shelley is apparently the victim of an attempted assassination, absolutely inexplicable. I mean, his great biographer, Richard Holmes, calls it one of the two great mysteries of his life. What happened that night? Why did it happen at all? Mm. Was Shelley having yet another one of his hallucinations? Mm. So what I've tried to do is come up with a story where suddenly that fits that is explained. It's not something that comes out of a blue sky, but it is actually part of something, a longer, a plot, which actually strings together. So that you know, the concrete posts actually are strung together by the end. Uh, but what I do do, going, uh, I try to, to be um, scrupulous about this, is that um, at the back there's quite a long section of notes where I make it quite clear what is fact and what is me because I don't want in any way anyone to go away from that book thinking that it's all true, um, because we don't know that. Um, quite a bit of what I've speculated might be true. <laughs> it might be true. I yeah. have to think one of the theories, the, the one that I've been particularly <laughs> particularly exercised about, some people have taken issue with me, I happen to think that that particular theory might well be true. Personally, I think that might be true, but I don't know. The shooting in... No, the other, uh, the other more uh, controversial aspect of how I present Mary Shelley, shall okay. we say, um, oh, which, is, yes. which is the one that um, some people have taken issue with. And I can see why they've taken issue with me. But they don't know what happened any more than I do. Yeah. Uh, and I think what I'm saying might have happened is a plausible, uh, a plausible explanation for otherwise very odd events. So... Um, and some say so those kind of readings and those differences of opinion come down to how we individually perceive and whether we like a, mm. a writer or, or a, a writer's character or not. In terms of those stories that you're inventing, 
did they do they represent to some extent your own opinion? Maybe for an obvious example is um, Shelley doesn't come out of the book particularly well. No. Um, and, and 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 you know I have I have huge um, sympathy with your your point of view, but but was that is, 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 to some extent is is the fictionalizing also it represents your own attitudes to some extent? Oh yes, I think okay. that it's impossible for it not to. Um, the interesting one was. Um, I always thought, as I started to do the reading before I, I put the plot together for the book, I, I was finding Shelley extremely difficult. I think anyone who reads Richard Holmes' biography, which is a marvellous biography, I don't really see how you can come away from that biography without grave doubts about Shelley. Mm. Uh, he, he has this sort of ability to just leave carnage in his wake uh, without appearing to know that he's doing it. Um, he does appear to have considerable problems with empathy. I mean, one of the things I always say about it is I think he lives on the, in, in the area of abstraction. He's ferociously intelligent, but he lives his life in terms of ideas. He doesn't live his life in terms of practical mm. day-to-day realities. And the, the, way that, one, the one thing that proves that for me is this idea of the poor. He's always writing political tracts in support of the poor. He's great with the poor as an idea. Yeah, he's fantastic with the poor as the idea. But when he actually meets people who might be part of that group, he treats them appallingly. Yeah. He's constantly you know, doing moonlight flits and leaving massive debts behind him for those people. Mm. The point being those very people who cannot afford uh, to be treated like that by a feckless member of the aristocracy. He treats them that way. He's no better than the people he's criticising in his tracts about the poor, but he doesn't seem to get make the connection. He fails to make the connection between the idea of what a poor person is and a real poor person. And I think that um, that's just one example. Again, you know, the idea of mm. he talks about love a lot in the abstract, but how he treats people that he claims to love is nothing like as, as uh, sort of sensitive. He's much more sensitive at the abstract level than he is in the level of reality. It's very It's odd echoes of Oscar Wilde later in the, sen- in the century. Even at his trial, Wilde would, on one level, say, I'm terribly democratic, I'll speak to everyone, and then would say the next breath that these boys that he was hanging around with, um, he would need to dress them up, and um, they didn't understand his work, and they were completely idiotic. And they're so strange. Um, it's this dichotomy between the two. Yes, yeah, failure to make the connection. Back to Ian Forster here, the only connect, I'm afraid. <laughs> Shelley fails to connect, really, most of the time. But, so yes, I, I found him difficult right from the start. Um, the, the two that were interesting, that, that whose view, that my view of them changed as I wrote it, were Mary and Claire. Um, Mary Shelley I disliked more the more I wrote about her. Um, Claire I loved more the more I wrote about her. Uh, I absolutely loved Claire by the end. She's by no means um, a, a entirely blameless in the uh, fiasco that was the Shelley Maynard. Um, <laughs> but she's... She has life to her, mm. um, and I just I, I admired her so much. After Shelley died, and she obviously wasn't married, um, and one of the reasons she wasn't married is because she'd been sort of, you know, sucked into this maelstrom of, of Shelley's life. Um, but she then had to find a way of supporting herself um, because she had no money, and she became a governess, and she became a governess in Moscow. That's right. She went all that way on her own in her early 20s, um, it, uh, miles and miles away from home um, letters would take months to arrive and have Facebook and Twitter then I just 
admired her courage, her mm. resilience. I don't think I would have taken on the now take on a job on my own in Moscow as a governor. <laughs> um, and I'm a lot older than her. I remember all these communications at my at my fingertips, but she did it. And yeah. I just I just really admired her. I just thought like the girl had guts.